Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. And welcome to episode 24. (laughs) 24? I don't know. What do you say about 24? There's a song by Switchfoot called 24. Really? 24 of shins. That's all I really remember. 24. Uh, That TV show with Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're like at... I don't know. I was going to say midnight, but then are we? Yeah, we're at midnight. The the year before you can rent a car. (laughs) Is it 25 or 26? I thought it was 25. Shit's so arbitrary. Like, why? What is 25? It's like, you want to go to war? Sure. You want to vote? Sure. Alcohol, marijuana in some states? Sure. Rent a car? Fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) Buy a house, get married, have kids. Yes, yes, yes. Rent a car. No. (laughs) We need whoever is in charge of car rentals to uh, take an active role in the government for some other stuff. (laughs) Seriously, the, the car rental lobby must be strong. So we both know, and the listener probably knows at this point, that this is going to be a dark episode, mm. followed by another dark episode. So what are some good things? What are some uplifting, bright things to chat about? I'll start. I bought... <laughs> <laughs> sure, go ahead. I just didn't want to put you on the spot, but then it came out all weird. (laughs) It came out like, I absolutely know you have nothing positive (laughs) within you right now. (laughs) I mean, we do text each other. (laughs) Well, mine is just that I bought a percussion massager. Yeah? How is it? It's good in the fact that it hurts me so bad. So I, I've had one professional massage in my life. And when I went, the masseuse was like, oh my God, you have a lot of knots. (laughs) You must carry a lot of stress. I was like, yeah, that's me. That's my MO. (laughs) And so I got this percussion massager. And when I tell you my body is full of knots, like as I like moved it around, it was like, ow, ow, ow. And so I've only used it twice so far, but like, this is going to be such a terrible review. I felt so ill after mm. the first time. Yeah. Like an incredible headache and just felt gross. So then I was Googling that like breaking up the knots and yeah. the lactic acid or whatever. Like you have to flush that out of your system. And I was like, okay, that's good. And then the yeah, next day Yeah, you're supposed I to drink hurt. a ton of water. I hurt so bad. And then I healed a little bit, and then I did it again, and the knots were not as painful the second time. So I feel as though it's a very good investment, even though it's torturous. I'm kind of just low-key wondering if maybe a professional should be doing something if you're that much of a mess. 
Yeah. Well, because my massage was before I started being a person who exercises too. Mm -hmm. So it's not that like I've built up these knots because I've been exercising so much. So it's like that's my natural state of being, I suppose. (laughs) And so I haven't gotten a lot of like joy from it. Mm -hmm. But I think in the long run, like I was telling myself like, okay, I need to use this like twice a week. Yeah. Until it gets to the point where it's not pain (laughs) to use it. (laughs) But the second time it was much less like the knots were there were fewer of them. They were smaller. So it's like, okay, this is going in the right direction. (laughs) That's good. That's good. I mean, self-care right now is very important. Yeah, I do. I am realizing now that my positive thing was that I bought a device that is hurting, hurting me very much. (laughs) I mean, you have to take the positivity where you can get it now. (laughs) I'm just hopeful that there's a long term good effect that it is worth uh, this. I think so. I mean, anything that helps you be looser. Yeah. And then just TV again, just watching my shows, my stories. So we were going to talk about Yellow Jackets and you're starting soon and I can't wait so we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, And I want to put it on the record publicly that for once I've started something before you. I am so upset that I haven't watched it yet. (laughs) But also, I am just so amazed that so many people have access to Showtime. <laughs> I mean, I'm totally in the one-month trial. That's my plan, is the one-month trial to <laughs> Obviously. Uh, binge it. <laughs> Absolutely. But then Dexter is back, and I'm kind of like, maybe. I didn't finish the first run of it. I stopped after the big controversial thing that I won't mention. Um, but if you know, you know, so I feel like I have to go back and then watch to the end before I could start. And I don't even know if I want to, but you know, maybe. No, totally. I just, I mean, we are on record on pod Melanie Linsky heads. Oh my God. So much. I mean, I saw heavenly creatures when it came out, whenever that was 1990 or 89 and I've loved her ever since. She's amazing. Yeah, I just, I'm really excited to watch it. And I've avoided spoilers. So I'm going to like binge the hell out of that. Yeah. I mean, it's one that as much as I like it, for some reason, it's not really one where like you have trouble turning it off to go to bed, you know? So mm, yeah. My husband and I, like, we'll watch two or three, and then it's like, okay, we got to go to sleep. And then, so normally I'm one to really, like, push through when I like something, and I do like it, but it's not, for me anyway, bingeable in that same kind of way. And I think just, it's just really, it's dark, you know, which I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that. (laughs) I can't remember if you and I have discussed Station Eleven. Mm -mm. It's one of the best miniseries I've ever seen, and... There's no way in the world I could have binged it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was nice to get, like, two or three episodes at a time, sort of that HBO Max way. Yeah. But do you know anything about it? Uh-uh. So it was a novel from 2014, but a flu pandemic 
happens and wipes out 99.9% of the population. Okay. Very tough to watch. Yeah, I Very bet. tough. <laughs> Having like heart palpitations as uh. uh, like the hospital scenes and as things are starting to happen. Incredible. Incredibly written, incredibly acted, incredibly scored, incredibly costume designed. I am obsessed with it. It is so beautiful but so hard to watch yeah maybe that's one that like in 10 years when I'm processing the trauma (laughs) from this moment I'll like (laughs) come back to I don't know yeah just incredible so good Mm. probably I was obsessed with it in the way of like Mare of Easttown yeah I love a miniseries. I do too. I do too. I don't need I don't need twelve seasons. Let's just get this incredible Yeah. Six to twelve hour arc. Yeah. Yeah. I love that meme where it's like a person sitting in front of a computer and it's like, I, I don't have the time or the attention to watch a movie, so I'll sit and binge like a twelve hour T V show. <laughs> it's true. It that that one works because it's true. It speaks to who we are as people now. Totally, totally. Yeah. For real, though, I sat down to watch The Eternals, which was like, I don't know, somewhere between two and a half and three hours. Yeah. And I was like, damn. And when I tell you that I will just sit and binge a TV show for like six to eight hours, depending on how good it is. Yeah. And it's like, so what has happened? Well, I mean... That's part of the Marvel cinematic universe, mm-hmm. which like actually is hurting me to speak those syllables. Um, <laughs> because I feel like there's no... So I stopped a long time ago. My husband is like huge into comics and I tried to do it and I watched like the Avengers and I actually like the Avengers and I watched like a couple, but then... I stopped because there's just like no characterization and they would claim that there is, but like, I think they're drawing upon knowledge from the comics when they say that, because there's none in the movies. So it's just like, do, do a thing, do a thing, do another thing, do a thing, do another thing. Like, you know, I don't know. That's boring. I think they're fun spectacles. I've, I've seen a lot of people referring to it as, like, theme park rides and mm-hmm. not movies. Yeah, I can see that. So I enjoy it. I mean, there's definitely parts of the MCU I really like. I'm, I'm, I've never read a comic book. I'm, I'm not in that world. Uh, Andrew, but you say things like MCU. Some of the, like, there's... judging th- you. There's great things in there. <laughs> But I, I think their TV shows are better, too. I, there's something about TV. I guess it's because you're writing for 30 to an hour. So that means you're consistently having cliffhangers and reveals yeah. in a way that movies now feel like slow burns. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, while we're at it, I was trying to watch that new Star Wars show. Snooze. It is the most boring <laughs> shit I've ever seen is that the mandalorian thing no it's boba fett oh i am not i have watched the star wars things i am not a star wars person by comparison i am like a huge marvel head (laughs) (laughs) i just 
it's like sure i'll watch it people talk about it it's trending yeah oh my god boba fett is so dull i mean i i was in that zone for the original trilogy you know like i had a giant star wars poster on my wall when i was in kindergarten and like so excited when that each new one came out but I think it's more just like a nostalgia thing. I rewatched the first one with my kids and it was like, huh, mm, okay. <laughs> but there's a lot of nostalgia there and I, I get that. But I think I watched one of the new trilogy and was just like, whatever. So I've, I've watched all the stuff. So listener, a glimpse into me, I think that the movie Rogue One and the Mandalorian series are the absolute top tier, best of the best in all of Star Wars. And I assume I am like in a super minority. Mm. <laughs> I just don't care. I always kind of thought the originals were boring. They were just fine. They never spoke to me. Yeah. But I Boba mean... Fett is on, it's like borderline unwatchable. Like the storytelling pacing is bad. It's like there's, three sets they go to like three locations in the whole thing they're doing this like multiple timeline thing which doesn't help the story the slowest most boring chase scene where it was like (laughs) watching the oj going down in that white bronco just so slowly (laughs) it's like literally nothing is at stake here (laughs) it is and some people adore it but it is not for me I mean, so as yellow we jackets, always here I say, yeah, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Yellow Jackets is great. The cast is great. Like, both the cast that you know and the new faces. Yeah, I can't wait for you to get into it so we can have a text discussion. Yes. I finished The Expanse. That ended well. I didn't know. Uh, it's a sci-fi show. It's It's good. I can't, I can't keep up with you. All I can do is like grasp onto the shiniest thing in the cultural, you know. Well, as um, a person with no children, right now, (laughs) and then hold on tight. (laughs) I have a lot of free time. (sighs) I mean, yeah, I do. I was gonna say no, I don't. Like, I'm like pretty spent. Like, work has been really tough, but I, I still do. I mean, I don't have kids. I don't have a family. There are still hours of the day that are just to myself, and I can do whatever I want. Yeah, so and beautiful. So movies and TV shows and a small handful of books. I'm normally pretty voracious, but the pandemic has cut that way back. Yeah. Brains not work like usual. I watched the new Matrix movie. How was that? It was fine. I'm not mad at it existing. I don't think it needed to exist. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was, but it didn't speak to me in the same way as the original trilogy. I mean, I saw all of them, and I, I dug them. I mean, Keanu, what's not, not to like there? He's cool. Easy on the eyes. Um, Carrie Ann Moss, also like her. But, I, I, you know, it didn't, like hang on to me it was just another like trilogy series that I saw in my 20s you know like when I read later about the whole red pill blue pill like I had no 
understanding of what that referred to. Like, I get how it's used now, blah, blah, because I read about it. But I didn't remember that even being in the movies. Like, you know, I remember them in the same way that I remember most movies that I saw 20 years ago. Just kind of like very generally. I just, to me, the pop culture that comes to mind is Elon Musk saying, like, take the red pill and Ivanka Trump responding and saying, I took mine. And then Lana Wachowski responding and saying, fuck both of you. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, this like trans allegory has really been co-opted by the right wing because those little fuck faces can't do anything right. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Barf. We're, we're only talking about uplifting things, remember? Oh, nope. That's not my MO, I guess. <laughs> I mean, until we get to the reason that we're here. That unpleasantness. I don't know. I think we could maybe we just lean into it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important conversation. And, and like I'm saying this in serious now, we're being goofy before, but it, it's it's an important one. It's not like a fun thing to talk about, but um, I'm looking forward to it from the perspective of like how important it is, I think, for us as a society and a country to grapple with these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to also specifically be talking about The Matrix, which is probably why it was on my mind. Mm. Um, so with that in mind... I mean, you could tell from the episode title, but we're discussing Columbine and Mm -hmm. the massacre there. And it's such a big one. It's such a complex one that it's going to be a two-parter. So this is part one. And I'm going to sort of set the scene, not really Littleton, Colorado, but more so America in the 90s and late Mm -hmm. 90s. So... While there were definitely many school shootings before Columbine, it's still safe to say that this massacre changed the course of American culture permanently. Mm-hmm. It was one of those watershed moments that you can measure time by, like a before and after. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, setting the scene of late 90s America, still sort of in the school zone for starters, Most schools, and by most, I mean like most, not like 51%, but most schools did not have active shooter drills or emergency plans to deal with shooters Mm -hmm. in general. Like upwards of 80% did not have emergency plans. Yeah. It was also pre-9-11, so you could just walk up to airport terminals and it was like whether it was real, false, whatever, there was a general sense of safety yeah. that happened in the 90s. And I'll get into some of the reasons why. And, well, I guess that's unless you were one of the folks who thought the entire world was going to collapse with Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> there were still, like, death cults or whatever. Uh, my oldest sister was a hard Y2K believer, I remember, heading into that new year. I mean, it was plausible. we didn't know yet (laughs) even then though as like an 11 year old or 12 year old i was like okay well why not just set the clocks back (laughs) (laughs) so i still had some questions (laughs) 
But that said, so I, I was 11 when Columbine happened. I'd never felt unsafe in school. I, I remember switching to mesh backpacks as our schools, even in Mississippi, were trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. Uh, but that's getting ahead of myself. It's, it's easy to be nostalgic, but the 90s actually were a time of great prosperity in America. And I've even seen opinion pieces that it was the last time of great prosperity in America. So far, not saying that is a ever. <laughs> the future could be bright. We'll see. Everything but happens for a reason. The U.S. economy grew by an average of 4% during the years between 1992 and 1994. Since 2001, it never grew by 4%. And since 2005, it never grew by 5% for a whole year. Mm-hmm. On average, 1.7 million jobs were added to the American workforce versus around 850,000 a year, but not including the pandemic. So mm-hmm. pre-pandemic. Right. Um, the unemployment rate dropped from nearly 8% in 92 to 4%, and that was effectively zero by the end of the decade. From 1990 to 1999, the median American household income grew by 10% since 2000. And again, pre-pandemic, it shrunk by nearly 9%. Mm. The poverty rate peaked at over 15% in 1993, and then that fell to nearly 11% in 2000. More or less, it was post-war. I mean, there were still conflicts, but it was it was like a... A decent time. I'm looking at my notes. I can't remember if I put this later down or not, or if I just didn't include it, but it feels more relevant now. Like the Soviet Union had collapsed. Mm-hmm. The like ever present threat of nuclear apocalypse was over. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's easy to be nostalgic, but legit, the 90s was a decent time. During the 90s, stocks quadrupled in value. Shocking to me and horrifyingly so. As someone who's looking at home buying in California, you could buy a townhouse in Brooklyn in the 90s for 500000 mm-hmm. Nuts. <laughs> and the digital age got fully underway in the 90s, which is, we'll get into it further in the episodes, but it, that's another big piece of why Columbine was so impactful one of those watershed moments was the 24-hour news cycle, Mm -hmm. the spread of information outside of Colorado. It was was a different time in the digital age. So at the beginning of the decade, almost none of us had heard of the web. (laughs) We didn't have browser search engines, cell phone networks. There weren't 3D games. Laptops were not powerful and you couldn't afford one. By the end of the decade, we had all of them. Steve Jobs had returned to Apple, leading to its rebirth. Even still, we didn't know everything yet. In 1999, PayPal was named one of the worst business ideas. (laughs) So we weren't certain how technology was going to evolve and change, but even so, there was no social media. People used fax machines. People had beepers. Napster had just launched and my music piracy was about to begin. I feel personally attacked by this part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Harry Potter hit the scene, changed my life forever. Around the time of the shooting, Seinfeld had just ended and Sex and the City had just begun. 
Believe by Cher was a massive hit. It introduced auto-tune to the world. Mm. Britney Spears' Rolling Stone cover was a national scandal, which is crazy to look at. Like, I, even still, I get that she was 17, but the amount of clothes she is wearing. I, oh, I know. <laughs> to think of that, uh, the outrage... And of course, this was all in the shadow of Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, where America was having a, you know, quote unquote, morality crisis. Like, ugh, I hate even saying those words, but like, it is in a piece what has led to this evangelical Christian white nationalist hellscape that we're in right now, Mm -hmm. because we've become so much, or not we, but like, those people have become so much more emboldened. And this is kind of a piece of it, like the Clinton sex scandal, Britney Spears, the pop culture, the outrages that have led us to where we are now. Mm-hmm. But then Columbine happened. The shooting was, for many, a moment when the impossible suddenly became possible. And today, teens, families, and schools we know it like that is our world now um 57 percent of teens worry that a shooting could happen on their campus and that it just wasn't like that before columbine even though there had been more than 16 school shootings before columbine Mm -hmm. weeks before the shooting the matrix was released with groundbreaking success but after the shooting people started looking at a different light i found an atlantic interview that interviewed folks from around the country who were in high school at that time Uh, Megan Bishop was a junior at Beaverton High School in Beaverton, Oregon, and talked specifically about the Matrix. She said, quote, News of the Columbine shooting came out at the time of the Matrix. My friends loved the Matrix. My boyfriend at the time had one of those trench coats, and all of a sudden people wondered, okay, does that make you a shooter because you're wearing a trench coat and dark glasses and you're kind of a loner? So he was singled out, end quote. Hmm. She went on to say that her boyfriend, who was at a different high school, was actually disciplined for coming to school in a trench coat, even though he just liked the Matrix and computers. Yeah. People didn't know what to do. Yeah. They were trying to process, looking for anyone or anything to blame. And another thing that's different before and after Columbine is now there are copycats. Mm -hmm. I won't go into it in either episode, really i just i didn't feel like it was worth it or like we could do it justice like there's so much just about columbine but the columbine shootings influenced subsequent school shootings since columbine over 74 copycat cases have been reported 21 of which resulted in attacks while the rest were thwarted by law enforcement and many of them the perpetrators cited harris and klebold as heroes or martyrs so not just like there have been 74 school shootings right copycats specifically inspired by this right so that's kind of the good the bad and the ugly of the world of the 90s where we were and how things started to change i'll get into much more pop culture in episode two but for now kirsten do you want to walk us through the events of this awful story all right so moving over into the crime part of it Columbine, three syllables, nine letters, a really pretty sounding word that 
for most of recorded history meant one of a family of delicate flowers or a stock character in an Italian farce. But on April 20th, 1999, the innocuous word and place name began a new life as a one-word signifier, verbal lightning rod, and in a strange way, brand name for what we now also just call school shootings, aka acts of mass violence perpetrated within or near a school. Columbine Hmm. wasn't the first of its kind, of course. According to Wikipedia, the first recorded school shooting in the United States took place in 1840 at the University of Virginia. Over the next 60 years, there would be another 31 school shootings in the United States, with each subsequent decade having 10 or fewer such acts of violence. The 20th century saw a slight increase in these numbers, but through 1970, the decade total surpassed 20 only once. Then, in the 70s, something shifted. The number of school shootings in the 1970s in the U.S. jumped from 21 in the 60s to 40, nearly doubling. In the 80s, the number again jumped from 40 the previous decade to 58. But as Andrew mentioned earlier, the 90s were a tipping point in society for so many things, school shootings being one of them. In the 90s alone, there were 91 school shootings, almost triple the number of recorded incidents in the entire previous century. Damn. Yeah, it's incredible. The attack at Columbine High School came near the end of that brutal decade. But for a variety of reasons, it became a cultural touchstone and an avatar, not only for school violence, but a host of other societal ills and anxieties youth violence, nihilism, mental illness, bullying, gun control, video games, and more. But before we get to all of that, let's back up just a little bit. I mentioned the date, which is so well known by now, April 20th, 1999. But let's go back a little bit further to early 1997. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, then both 15 and sophomores at Columbine High School, had known each other for about three years at that point, and they had bonded over video games and theater and video production and bowling, of all things. They had moved beyond middle school, which had been rocky for both of them, and were making their way in high school with a small but close group of friends, of which they were the center. But what seemed to many like pretty typical teen boy behavior and pastimes was already showing the earliest signs of what was to come. A website Harris created to host levels for first-person shooter games he was into became part online journal, and that journal expressed his growing contempt for society and violent ideation. By August of that year, Harris had become more bold and ended one entry by saying, quote, All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people, end quote. And he then name-checked a specific classmate. That classmate had been the best friend of Klebold in elementary and middle school, and he knew both boys well. When he saw this on Harris's blog, he immediately let his parents know, and his parents contacted the sheriff's office about the threat, and an affidavit was drafted to request a search warrant of Harris's house. 
but the application was never submitted to a judge. By the end of 1997, Harris had posted instructions on how to make a bomb on his website. So we see this incredible escalation in a very short period of time. Though less obviously disturbed and more well-liked than Harris, Klebold was also beginning to demonstrate some disturbing thought patterns and behavior. In two notable school assignments, he wrote a short story about a character that killed several students, and he did a research paper on Charles Manson. The teacher who received that short story assignment was concerned, and he alerted Klebold's parents. We'll come back in a little while to kind of the parent reaction, particularly the parents of, of Dylan Klebold. But in January 1998, Harris and Klebold, who were both then 16, were arrested for breaking into a van and stealing the contents. And that resulted in three felony charges each. This was their first real interaction with law enforcement. They both pled guilty to those charges and they were sentenced to a juvenile diversion program, uh, which included anger management classes and community service. They were eventually released from the program early because of, quote, positive actions that they had taken during the diversion, including a famous apology letter that Harris wrote to the owner of the van. This letter was used by psychologists and psychiatrists after the Columbine attack to form the basis of a posthumous psychiatric diagnosis for Harris. And again, we'll come back to this later. After this official run-in with law enforcement, Klebold and Harris continued as before, asocial and violent fantasies and role-playing. Whether it was in self-produced videos or first-person shooter video games, their activities just went underground. Harris reverted his website to a simple host for user-created levels of the, these first-person shooter games. And he began writing his thoughts and fantasies in a physical journal something Klebold had begun the year before. Harris's writing seemed more violent for violence's sake and featured themes of anti-Semitism, misogyny, and even cannibalism. Klebold's writings, although no less frightening, featured themes of revenge and reprisals. He talked a lot about his feelings of alienation and depression. By this time, they were both juniors in high school, and Klebold and Harris were inseparable. Their dark interior lives began to merge and form an almost separate entity outside of each of them as individuals, and we've kind of seen that in some of the other partner crimes that we've covered, but we'll get more into that later. Former classmates reported that they had become very dependent on one another emotionally and psychologically. I think a lot of folks report that Klebold was the more dependent because he was kind of depressed and, and more introverted. But some said at the time that Harris was, at, was actually very dependent on Klebold. Uh, Klebold was more well-liked and had an easier time, I think, connecting with people. It's during this time, in the months after the van break-in, while actively in a diversion program aimed at rehabilitating troubled juveniles, mind you, it's during that time that Harris and Klebold began planning what is now one of the most infamous crimes in American history. Over the next year, they meticulously planned an attack that in many ways had more in common with a terrorist attack than a mass shooting or what we think of as a school shooting. 
Harris and Klebold began assembling an arsenal of guns, ranging from sawed-off shotguns to 9mm semi-automatics. Their plan also included several tiers of explosive devices, which were to be used as diversions, kind of crowd control, and also mass casualty devices. In the months leading to the attack, they constructed 99 bombs of various types. Holy shit. Yeah. They planned the timing of the attack down to the minute, with a really clear understanding of what parts of school would be heavily populated at what times, and how to control the flow of panicked victims to realize the highest number of casualties possible, which was in fact their stated goal, which was discovered later in the writings and the recordings, to outdo the worst domestic terrorist attack at that time, which was the Oklahoma City bombing which almost exactly four years prior had resulted in the loss of 168 lives. So that was their goal, to surpass 168. So with this military-style plan and an arsenal of weapons and explosives, Klebold and Harris arrived on campus at Columbine High School on the morning of April 20th, 1999. They planted duffel bags stuffed with propane bombs in the cafeteria as well as the cache of pipe bombs and aerosol bombs in other places around campus. It's not 100% known exactly when they planted those cafeteria bombs. There was a time when they were changing the tape, the security tape, right around 11.14. Um, and so some people think that they planted those bombs right at that tape change. Other people think that they had come earlier in the day and planted them before lunch. but. Other people still think that they had come the weekend before there was a dance on campus, that they had come then and planted them. So it's not entirely known when those bombs were placed, but those bombs were placed in the cafeteria. The lunch period was set to begin at 11.15, and about 400, over 400 people would have been in the cafeteria during that lunch period. After the bombs had been placed, they left school again to change clothes, and they went and they put on these homemade bandoliers or, or gun holders and this specialized webbing that they had made that held guns onto their body underneath these. They're called in a lot of reports trench coats. They were actually black duster coats. They went home to, to put on this custom-made equipment that they had and they came back to campus separately. At around 11 a.m. they arrived, they parked separately on campus. Each of their cars contained even more bombs that were set to go off. The idea behind the bombs in the car were to potentially kill first responders and students who had escaped to the parking lots. Over the next hour and eight minutes, Harris and Klebold held Columbine High School under a siege that took the lives of 13 victims and seriously injured 21 more. I'm not going to go into a minute-by-minute -minute breakdown. I think there's already a lot of information out there about these crimes. Essentially, though, we can say that, fortunately for everyone involved, the, the plan did not go as expected. The bombs planted in the cafeteria did not detonate, thankfully. There's some report that if those had detonated, it would have killed all of the almost 500 students in the cafeteria at that time, as well as potentially collapsing the pillars that supported the central structure of the entire school and killed even more with a collapse. 
God. Yeah. The actual shooting began about 20 minutes in, and they moved from area to area within the school. Um, Again, I don't want to go into too much detail about that. It, It feels gratuitous. There's a lot of information out there for folks. But I think that at that point, it became a little bit chaotic because, again, they had planned very thoroughly down to the minute, but a lot of what they had planned didn't go as they expected. And so they went to kind of a backup plan was just wander around the school shooting people. By 1120, so I mean really only about 10 minutes into the actual shooting part of the attack, the police arrived outside of the building. A lot has been made, and we'll get to this later, about the hesitancy of police to enter the building and the lives that were lost because of that hesitation. But that is the time when police arrived at school. But this the scene was very chaotic. By 11.30 that morning, Harris and Klebold entered the library. This is the area where the majority of the victims were killed. That part of the attack lasted less than 10 minutes. After that, they moved back into the cafeteria. They tried again to detonate the bombs that were there by shooting at them. They launched some kind of Molotov cocktail type, you know, hand bombs that they had made. Mm-hmm. And then at 12.08 p.m. that day, they went into the science area of the school and they took their lives. It's not entirely known if that was always part of the plan. I think they had some grandiose and narcissistic features that saw some of their plan be to escape and to, you know, lead lead these lives of crime and, you know, but I think that was probably always part of the end game or at least a plan B, a backup plan. Those are the broad strokes of the crime. There's a lot that we still have to go into and talk about related to the crime. But we're going to save that for the next part of this episode. But before we end today, I want to take just a moment and end this episode by naming and honoring the victims of this crime. Rachel Scott, who was age 17 at the time of her death. Daniel Rohrberg, who was 15. William Sanders was 47. Kyle Velasquez was age 16 at the time of his death. Stephen Kernow, 14. Cassie Bernal, age 17. Isaiah Scholes, 18. Matthew Ketcher, age 16. Lauren Townsend, age 18. John Tomlin, 16. Kelly Fleming, 16. Daniel Mauser, age 15. Corey DePuder, 17. I also want to say a couple of words to honor the victims who did not die in the attack. There were 21 victims who were seriously injured in the attack and many more who suffered psychological trauma from the events of this day. So this episode is dedicated to those survivors and their families. Yeah. Hearing the ages, I think because I was 
so young and so aware when this happened Mm -hmm. and like they were older than me Mm -hmm. so now putting on the lenses as a 34 year old looking back yeah they were babies i mean oh yeah yeah it's so sad so sad well i mean definitely a heavy one listener thank you for listening to this one we'll be back next week with part two to discuss more about this massacre and just scratch the surface of the ways in which it's changed the world that we live in now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely so as always we appreciate the hell out of you absolutely thanks for listening to most foul if you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in this has been a facts from janet production